Hi, this is Sherry. I want to clarify the Law Matters mission. We invite current and former law enforcement on this show to talk about their careers, explain to the listeners what their jobs are like, and to answer your questions while we promote authentic, candid communication between law enforcement and the community. I apologize for any guest who goes off topic or off the deep end. In short, we are nonpartisan, not a political platform. Law Matters continues to support and respect the amazing men and women of all law enforcement. We ask you to join us in honoring their courage and heroism. When you have the opportunity, thank them for their service and willingness to risk their life so the rest of us can be safe. Now let's start the show. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining Law Enforcement. In the studio, we have Pima County Search and Rescue. We have drone pilots, or one drone pilot, a technician, and Deputy Choke. So we're pretty safe right here. We have Chris, Jason, and Steve. Chris, how long have you been? Yeah, I'm sorry. How long have you been uh, involved with search and rescue? Uh, I've been a member of the Southern Arizona Rescue Association since 2014. And what is your background? What wanted you? What did you want to get involved with? I was very active in the outdoors, and also uh, enjoy helping people. So I just had a real interest in, in learning about search and rescue. I started attending general meetings at Sarah for about six months and then uh, went through the recruitment process and was selected. What was the recruitment process like for you? After attending an orientation, you participate, you're invited to a, a candidate hike, and then and in the course of the hike, you're interviewed by current members of the organization and they evaluate you for your fitness and just your overall demeanor and attitude do you have a level head on your shoulders and uh, from that candidate hike then uh, a number of people are are invited to the selected as candidates and invited to participate in the training which is a four or five month process uh, if you throw in the medical the advanced medical training, it's almost a year total with the total training. Are you an EMT? I am, yes. Are uh, you Are you an EMT too? I am not. I'm an EMR. It's okay. one step down. Are you going to be an EMT? I don't think so. No? No. What's an EMR? I've never heard of it. It's an emergency medical responder. Uh, okay. It's a little less work to become an EMR <laughs> than an EMT, but that's a baseline requirement for, for becoming a rescuer is EMR. Okay, Jason, tell us what your background is and how long you've been involved with Search and Rescue. Uh, I started in, I applied in 2019 and started in 2020, so it's been about two and a half years. Um, I discovered the group actually in a hike. I was helping out a couple, and uh, when we met Sarah, we called 911 to get them out, uh, they said, you did everything right. We would like you to join, and I was like, awesome. So I went through the same process Chris went through. Um, I applied and went through all that rigmarole, and it was great. Uh, of course, COVID blew the my class apart, but uh, <laughs> we we eventually finished up, and and uh, I've been involved ever since. During that time is when I was brought into the drone team, and uh, the, that's been a lot of fun ever since. How long have they had a drone team? Since before I was there, but uh, maybe Chris knows. What do you know when it started up? I don't know specifically, but it's been 
gosh, I'm going to say three, three or four years. Maybe. Okay. Maybe 2018. I think some of the documents we have from it go back to 2017, 2018. Steve? I would have to say that's probably correct. But what happened was it was an interest in drones that developed into this program. We're still working the kinks out and seeing the best use for this and getting everybody trained up to where they need to be. Did you ever get your cave people team put together? We're working on that too. (laughs) Okay. Okay. How long does it take to become a drone pilot? Well, if you're smart, it's a lot faster, but you have to study for your, um, what's called a part 107 certificate. And that allows you to do commercial flights and flights for search and rescue and stuff like that. So you have to study for that and take that test. You have to take that test at a, uh, at a flight school. It's actually the same, similar test to a, to a pilot's license, but there's no airtime involved. It's just knowledge. And, um, then we do some testing on top of that, some requirements and things like that. And most of it is tr- we're trying to keep it standard amongst the everybody so we can help with uh, interagency searches and things like that. But uh, I would say six months to a year to actually get there. That's It took me about six months. Um, hmm. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of reading and a lot of studying, especially have no, if you have no flight or airplane background. It's a lot of reading. So if you're a pilot and you have a pilot's license already and you're flying airplanes, then becoming a drone pilot should be a lot easier. Much easier, yes. Yes, much, much easier. Okay. So you you decided to become a drone pilot. Where did you practice? How did you do this? Well, I we have uh, a, a Sarah drone, and uh, I was able to practice with that. Does it say Sarah on the side? Uh, it does have a Sarah sticker on the side, does it? yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I was able to practice with that, and um, there were a couple of online video classes and books that I was able to borrow and study for the actual test. And they have I, a simulator. Uh, there, kinda. Not that I know of. No, there might be. Okay, <laughs> I'm sure there are video games or something like that. But no, I, I was. I, I did the studying, I did the reading, and then I went and took the test. And once you get the certificate in the FAA's eyes, you're able to fly these things as long as you follow all the rules okay does it does it go like a i learned on a twin engine obviously i can't fly an a10 is are there different levels of requirement for different styles of drones yes but anything that any of us are going to fly which is less than 55 pounds is probably going to be covered by this part 107 certificate so if you're getting bigger than that you're talking about gigantic military things Okay. We're not flying anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> so when have you used the drone in a search and rescue situation? Personally, no, I have not yet. Um, we've got a uh, couple of instances where some of the other pilots have, but I've, I've done a lot of training and a lot of exercises, but I have not been out there yet with the drone on a rescue. Do they do, um, like when they're doing any kind of search and rescue what what is it called when you have an incident and you recreate it we've done that before with the drones oh, yeah. okay and, uh, where we've gone to a to an event that we've done previously right and reenacted it with our new with the equipment to see what the results would be so jason's been involved in some of that as well as chris 
So tell me about those situation that was recreated. Well, we did one up in uh, Gordon Hirabayashi prison camp where <laughs> there's a well, that's you Mount Lemmon that milepost. Ma- I'm second. sorry, Mount Lemmon. <laughs> okay, sorry. Uh, and <laughs> what we were able to do is kind of take. We had two different drones there, and we were able to keep the drones with the search teams and kind of assist from the sky what they were looking at. Um, you know, trying to keep eyes in front of them, and they say, hey. You know, if you come to a split in the trail, can you check this trail? Because we're going to go down this one. And with the drone, it's it's very easy. You can move 30 miles an hour as the crow flies where they have to, you know, carry their heavy packs. So it's kind of like having a very tall spotter with you. And Well, during that exercise on uh, at uh, prison camp, they were able to detect like a water bottle that somebody potentially dropped, right. a clue that would give you a direction of travel. Okay. And they could t- relay that to the ground teams to move that direction to um, do further investigation. Right. Oh, that's pretty cool. It is, yeah. And it also can be a safety issue as well where the drone will cover remote or rugged terrain where you don't have to put ground personnel into a difficult territory. So can and, not, and expose them to that risk. So they especially if they're on the wrong trail. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that that'd save a lot of time. So, do you plan on getting the tank kind of drones that can drop supplies to people, if you know, medical supplies or food and water? That that would be somewhere in the future if we did that. But I, we don't have that in the plans right now. The big thing we're focusing on right now is trying to get uh, infrared so we can see at night. Oh, that would, yeah, that would be good. Yeah. We'll tell people they have to wait until morning. Yeah, don't get lost in this daytime. <laughs> well, the, the other thing with having a drone team is you can have a drone working one area and you can have a ground team moving forward and they can then deploy a, a drone further up trail and continue to leapfrog like that and cover this, the area as well. Right. So we have a lot of options with the drones when they're deployed. Okay, this is a volunteer group, and I know, like, the horse people and the dog people, they have to buy their own equipment. Did they buy your drone for you, or is it yours? It's mine. And you put a sticker on it, so I, people would know that hovering above me is search and rescue. I, well, you can't read it from the ground, <laughs> but yes, if if they were to see the sticker, yes. Um, How close to the ground can you get with one of those? Uh, well, you well, did crash, so yeah, that was pretty close. I hit a telephone pole, yeah, but uh, <laughs> no, um, or a light pole. Uh, you don't want to fly too close. You don't want to fly where it's dangerous. Uh, the maximum is 400 feet above ground. You're not supposed to go any higher than 400 feet above the ground, which is way up there. I was going to say, that's pretty high. It is, yeah. So you can't see from 400 feet above no, the ground. No, so. but if you, you can drop down to 20 feet and see pretty well. You can zoom in the camera and, and see what you need to see. So Big Brother is watching you. If you're hiking on uh, Mount <laughs> Lemon, they've got drones out. Well, that's not what they're out there for. Oh. But. No, no, no. no. Uh, Jason, can you tell about a restriction like your um, your line of sight? What what are some of the rules in your drone flight? Sure, yeah. Uh, one of the things you need to make sure you do is keep the drone within visual sight. You have to be able to see where it is. So if it's too far away, you're, you're, you're breaking the rules. You have to be, keep it within sight. But what you're allowed to do, and as the pilot, you're typically looking at a small screen is you're allowed to have somebody called a visual observer. That could be Chris, it could be whoever is with me, but they need to keep an eye on the drone and make sure that it is within 
line of sight. Oh, visual because line you're of looking sight. at whatever's in your hand. Correct. I'm looking at the tiny little video screen, tra- okay. looking for water bottles or people or something like that. And uh, Chris is making sure that, for, for example, is making sure that uh, I'm not going behind trees or behind a hill or something like that, that we are within visual line of sight. So do you have to drive them to a certain point? To where, you know, if somebody calls in and says, I'm, I'm lost, I'm by this big tree in this small creek, do you have to drive them to that point? Well, we would start an operation like any operation. We would go to the uh, last known point. So if we knew they took off from a specific trailhead, we would have our volunteers meet there with their equipment, and then they'd deploy appropriately. So when you call in the volunteers, you're calling in the horse people, the dog people, and the drone people? We'll call in specifically the task that's needed. So give me an example. If we put out a page and say we've got an injured hiker in Sabino Canyon that's lost, we could make a request for a drone and say we need to fly this trail because we're not sure where they're at. They might be off trail. But that's a trail that we use horses for extraction. So we might have the horses started at the same time. And then we're going to have ground teams going in there because we have to have the contact to do the medical, get them on the horse or put them in the basket and wheel them out, whatever it is. So that's how the calls come out. Um, if it's an unknown area, then we might request that we need the dogs as well because we're going to want to try to do a, um, air ascent trailing or something like that. So each call is specific and we try to, we try to, go through the information that we have when we make the request for resources. Okay. There's a lot to it. I, I don't think people realize just how much goes into one rescue. Well, you, You've got a lot of people involved. Well, it's not only one rescue. If you look at what goes into one volunteer, like Jason is a drone operator, but Jason is required to keep up all his other um, credentials with Sarah as far as his rope work and that that as well. So when he says that's a lot of reading, people don't recognize the hours that our volunteers put in or the the dog people training, Sardi training their dogs, the horse people riding their horses and making sure they're capable, um, the dive team. I mean, they're, our volunteers put endless hours in their training. And, and the medical is uh, keeping up our medical certifications is another big, big, piece of what we do exactly thanks chris so you said rope work what do you mean rope work yippee coyote what is it if we're going to do a technical (laughs) rescue say say we use a drone they find somebody that's that's in a really rugged canyon that there's not a trail that goes down to that person we're going to have to deploy with ropes from above then we have to have rope technicians that know how to set up a rope system that we can deploy using using harnesses for our people that are going over using ropes and um, anchor systems and things of that nature so we can go down there. And if they're on the side of a canyon and we have to deploy with a a basket and do a pickoff, we have to be able to put that person into a basket and get them back up to the surface where we can either do a ground transport or air transport. So do you have people that you put a harness on and they just like climb up the side of the canyon? We have some very capable people, I'll tell you that. <laughs> that's that's pretty impressive. So I wanna I wanna ask you about your technician. So what what all do you do with search and rescue? 
Well, initially in my career, I was very active in the in the field, going out um, on missions, and um, sustained an injury and uh, an ankle injury, and um, also with work requirements, my role has evolved. I'm now more of a. I serve on the board of directors for the organization. I help with a lot of training, like medical training and uh, land navigation training, uh, things of that nature. Okay, land navigation training, what does that mean? How to use a compass, um, how to use a map. Um, and it's amazing how many people don't know how to use a compass. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just And then also yeah. how, to use, uh, how to effectively use some of the, the new techno- technological tools at our disposal, such as GPS apps and things of that nature, mapping tools and so forth. So I'll help with training in that. And then another big area, which is kind of the tie into the drone program, is, uh, if I can just take a moment, um, 97% of all searches are resolved in the first 24 hours. And those, in that initial response time, typically we're focusing on known trails or routes. When When we don't find the subject within that time frame, and we make the decision that the person is no longer moving, the search evolves into a different, completely different type of search where we um, define an area, the area on the map where we think the subject is, and then we, we divide up that area into segments, and then we assign resources to search, thoroughly search those individual segments. And the planning behind that is um, is altogether more complex than what's involved with our, our initial somebody who's talking to you, or or just just a, a, a typical search where we're it, we find the subject within a couple of hours. So when it when it goes beyond that, it evolves into into recovery into well, we call it an area search, and it may involve uh, typically it will inv- involve a lot more resources. It may involve different agencies, and so what we're trying to do in Sarah is develop an in-house capability to help with the management of the search operation. Uh, the sheriff's department will always be taking the lead in these in these situations, but we can help in a, in kind of a support function. There's extensive documentation. Um, there's a whole sort of planning process that goes into figuring out um, where you're going to search, how you prioritize your search areas, what resources are available, um, requesting those resources. And so um, I've been heavily involved in developing that, that what we, we call it an incident management team, and I've been, been um, very involved in that. One of the things that uh, one of our resources at our disposal would be the drone program. So I'm interested in how, how do we take that real-time information and data from a drone operator and integrate that into the, into the planning process. Yeah, it's going to be a really awesome tool to have to expedite things. So that's, that's kind of my, my role with respect. It's more of a liaison with the drone team uh, from an incident management standpoint. So what did you do before you became a search and rescue volunteer? Uh, well, currently I work as, uh, as an IT and technical director for Northminster Presbyterian Church here in town. So I work in technology, um, as does Jason, so we're just a couple of nerds, I guess, right? <laughs> Basically, yes. <laughs> Hired nerds. We call it the geek show. Yes. yes. So what did you do before you became a pilot? Uh, 
Well, I'm, I'm, nothing has changed since I've become a pilot, so it's the same thing. I've been working in IT for about 20 years. So For who? Uh, different places, but different. right now the university. U of A? Uh, U of A Foundation. It's their there subsidiary. That, yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So I've been doing that for about a year and a half, but but Surrounded some form of things. IT. Yeah. 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 Chris and I also serve on the, uh, the uh, I think we call it the technology board or technology committee. Is that what it is? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we make sure all the computers work there too. Oh, wow. Okay. You should come to my house. I think mine's screwed up. <laughs> so... It's, it's it's if I may, just, it's just worth pointing out that that with uh, Southern Arizona Rescue Association is an all volunteer organization, and they're just uh, besides actually boots on the ground searching for people, there are a wide variety of of tasks that um, where we need we need help with uh, that people are volunteering for to keep the organization running. Everything from cleaning the bathrooms to making sure the trucks are running to a lot of administrative functions, uh, keeping keeping records of of everything that we're doing. Whose truck is running? His. Our organization has has. You have your own trucks. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. They have a fleet of trucks, actually. Yeah. Yep. And and so when we're called out, we'll always deploy one or two trucks uh, on on the mission. Now you said there was a call this morning. Where are they? Uh, we have actually three calls that we're working this morning (laughs) prior to seven o'clock two are down south and uh, border patrol is helping us out with those right now and then one up on mount lemon did they say what kind of a call i mean do they really tell you do they really tell us yeah well well, the ones down um that border patrol is currently helping us were a couple of lost people and the individual on the back side of mount lemon is an overdue party so that could be somebody that's up there that got stuck on an overnight camping trip or something, and they just didn't return home at the time they were supposed to return. So we have a couple of, of our uh, search and rescue deputies working up there right now. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a few. This is Deputy Chuk with Pima County Search and Rescue, reminding you that infants and toddlers do not experience heat as adults do. Consider this when bringing your young ones on a hike in temperatures of over 80 degrees. You do not want to risk that child having heat stroke or being arrested for child endangerment. This is Colleen, a volunteer with Pima County Search and Rescue. If you are hiking with children and pets, you need to carry the extra supplies they can't. Remember, one quart of water per person per hour, and when it's half gone, turn around and start down. This is Amy, a volunteer with Pima County Search and Rescue. Before you head out, Turn your location app on in your smartphone, then power that phone off until you need it. And in an emergency, you will need a fully charged phone. Do you have security cameras on your home and live around the 400 block of West Ohio Street? On June 1st, 2021, a murder took place, and you just might have the information we need. To stay anonymous, upload your video to 88Crime. ¿Tienes cámaras de seguridad en tu casa? ¿Y vives cerca de la cuadra 400 oeste de la calle Ohio? El primero de junio de 2021 se registró un homicidio y es posible que usted tenga la información necesaria para resolver este caso. Law Matters Live Show brings you law enforcement every Saturday morning at 8. On our next show, we will speak with Grim from Diamondback Shooting Sports about Arizona gun laws and your liabilities of owning a weapon. Hi, this is Sherry. 
asking you to help us keep the lines of communication open with your tax-deductible donation. Simply go to our website, lawmatters1030.org, to show your support. Law Matters podcasts can be found on iTunes, Google Play, and lawmatters1030.org. Thanks for staying with us. In the studio today, we have Search and Rescue. We have Chris, Jason, and Steve. And we were just talking about how you help people, um, Chris, how you help people with their technology. So if somebody's lost, they've got a smartphone, and they don't know how to find their, their coordinates on it, can you walk them through that? Well, we actually have the ability to send them a link uh, through our emergency response app, where if they just tap on the on the link from their phone, we can use uh, that information and 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 get their coordinates that way. Um, otherwise, they would typically need to have uh, like a GPS app on their phone and then be able to know how to use the app. Typically, that app would tell you somewhere in the application. W- where what your location is and what those coordinates are. It's difficult to speak with any specificity because that's going to vary from application to application. So if you have coordinates, does that make your life easier with the drone? Yes, much easier. You know exactly where to check. And we can get there straight line of sight. We're not hiking. We can go 30 miles an hour and check that spot. Very so quickly. how far away, I know it has to be within sight, but how far can a drone travel from where you are because you're the source of energy or direction, right? It, it can fly miles. It can fly miles from where I stand, assuming I get a good signal, a good clear signal. But um, that, I mean... If you're working on a mountain, how do you get a clear si- signal? Y- you don't always. Okay. You have to keep it within within range. And it'll start telling you, oh, the signal's getting bad, you probably don't want to be here. And if you do lose signal, there are tools inside that will bring it back to you so it remembers where you launched from like and a carrier pigeon <laughs> yes yes you don't have to feed it though you just recharge Isn't that it. awesome so yeah um, but as long as you can see the thing um that's as far as you can go and also battery life can also be a fa- big factor in terms of right. how long you can stay in the air and battery life is heavily affected by the weather so if you're fighting a lot of wind or if it's very hot or very cold the battery may not be as great but you typically will get about 25 to 30 minutes out of a battery that's all that's it but you can come back and replace them pretty quickly how many batteries do you carry around <laughs> i carry five okay um some of the other pilots have more than that but five fully charged batteries at any given time i've got with me are all the drones the same no kind they're different no and unfortunately the batteries aren't compatible and there's a lot of you know brand to brand things that are that are not compatible with one another. So my propellers, for example, won't work on the propellers from the Sarah drone, the official Sarah drone. Sarah has an official drone. Have you have you flown it? I have, yeah. That was what I learned on. Um, and then you had starting. to buy your own? Well, I didn't have to, but it was a lot easier to get my own and to take it out practicing. whenever I wanted to. Yeah, so now it's it's mine. I can go fly it by myself or I can fly it on behalf of Sarah. So did you have to buy your own equipment? I have not had to purchase any equipment with respect to the drone program, but all of my other everything gear for Sarah, yes, I, I purchased myself. Backpack, all my medical gear. All that stuff. Hiking poles, boots, all that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Jason, can you talk about um, 
the involvement with the TRG drone program and how everybody's working together to try to stay on top of... Yeah, the, the main goal with that is... TRG means what? I don't know what it stands for. Tactical response. Oh. Okay. So uh, the, the main goal with that is to all be on the same training um, path. Mm-hmm. So if we were to help somewhere else or at least need help with how do we, I don't know, how do we test and how do we credential people, uh, we can all know and be on the same, in, in the same area. So I can say I've done this NIST test and I've passed this test and that, that is a national standard. So I can say that here and then I can go to a Any different county. Yeah. And the they same. would know exactly what I was talking about. So that's the primary goal. And then of course, you know, open lines of communication and keeping everybody in the same, on the same path. So if you left here and went to like Colorado, New Mexico, California, you could automatically qualify because you've been through this process? So I don't know about that, but I could tell them that these things, I've got a... This is your resume. This is, this is my resume, and these, these credentials are nationally recognized. Whether Colorado recognizes them or not, that's one thing, but I can say XYZ, and they'll say, okay, well, we know what you're capable of doing. We know the language that you use. Okay. We know this, that. And many of these programs are, are young, so we're still trying to all figure out how to all do the same thing so we can help one another. Cross-train? Cross-train, yeah. Let me make a correction. I said tactical tactical response it's a tactical rescue group and with like jason said about being able to deploy in other areas with his credentials we um have the same thing with chris and the incident management team where they can go and deploy anywhere in the state with the information that they have so it's a resource that just doesn't benefit us locally but statewide because we're working with state credentials at this point so have you been called to other areas of the state? We we have helped in a mutual aid capacity in other counties, yes. Um, and Give me we, an example of a situation. Um, in terms of the incident management team, um, we have not, um, but in, in other contexts, we've, we've helped. Well, let me correct that. You have. You just didn't know it because, <laughs> because the team wasn't identified at that point, but we had a, a search where we helped a, a county south of us, and we had many of the volunteers working in the capacity that the team works now, but it wasn't officially titled that. We gave them the assignments that they would have. They helped us with the segmentation of the, of the mapping because we went from um, route and location search to a area search. When we do that, we have to segment the map into to areas that we're going to search with individual teams. They helped us do that. They helped us collect the data and get it entered into the computer for our documentation. Um, there were boots on the ground. They did it. Like I said, it was not the official title at that point. This is something that, that now is coming to fruition with actual um, policies and procedures and everything that they did and and we've developed the ability to we've focused on 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 developing the ability to say deploy a, a an entire network remotely and to have an internet connection um, we've also been working on if we have people that go to a place how do we and we also have some members of the team still locally how can they also help contribute to to the 
the management. So, so that kind of remote work uh, in support of people in the field is another thing that we've, we've worked on through collaborative applications like, like Teams, Microsoft Teams, um, where all we need is an internet connection. So we could have, let's say we go to another county in the state, we send our people there, we deploy our network and, and get set up at an instant command post there. We could also have people back here in Tucson who are collaborating with the team in the field over the internet um, who maybe are helping with mapping or something like that or just simple data entry. So so that, um, that that's kind of the thing that we've been working. We have our own laptops and uh, everything is in printers and so forth that we all, we have them in pelican cases and what's and, a pelican case oh it's just a big rugged uh equipment case okay. that we can transport gear in and um when if so if we are called then we can throw our our gear into a truck and go and then also have but also have people back home who who can still also help with the operation so when you're out in the field like that do you have to use what they call a hot spot and do do those hotspots work like everywhere? If we have what we need is a good cell signal for we have five what are called five G routers that have a SIM card in it, and if we have a good cell signal, then we can have an internet connection. You can good, communicate. Yep, yeah. and then we can set up a wireless network uh, where we are, and and people can use that. So th- what you're talking about happened in Cochise County. Correct. Yes. Okay. okay. What was the situation? Was somebody lost or yeah? We injured? had a we had a hiker that was lost. It turned into an overnight situation. I think we searched several days for this individual with no success. But um, our incident management team was taking care of all of our documentation, inputting the tracking of all of the teams that are in the field, what areas were checked, what clues were found. All that documentation was being put into our report while other parts of the incident management team were making assignments for those teams and looking at the priorities of um, segments and how they needed to be checked because we just don't segment a map and say, go to it. Right. We have to have statistical information that shows us probabilities of areas. The areas with the highest probability are the areas that we want to um, look at first. Unfortunately, it was snowing. It was uh, very poor conditions down there, and the individual was later found. But it was a, it was at a much later date as a recovery. That's sad. And what we did actually subsequent to that that search was our our incident management team went back to the same area. We did not find the subject initially, and we went back as a training exercise and basically. Um, restage the entire operation for training, and, yeah. for training purposes, including uh, putting out the call to other agencies to participate, and then the whole conducting the briefings, doing all the planning, preparing all the documentation, looking, defining our search area, segmenting the map, um, conducting the operation. Uh, that was another time when we actually went through all of the. Um, did all the legwork to fly. We had we had air operations as well, but we were going to fly drones. Unfortunately, the day of the exercise, the winds were too strong for us to fly, but we still went through the process of coordinating with our, the other agencies and so forth. And so, um, so we did. We did. Um, that was just a, a really a good exercise for us, where we um, we used 
what was an, an unsuccessful initial search. We used that as a, as a training opportunity in that. And we deployed teams in the field, debriefed them when they came back, uh, et cetera. We didn't find them in, on that particular day also, but uh, it, as Steve said, the subject was later found. So do you encourage all of your search and rescue people to be EMTs or EMRs? It's, a, requir- it's a requirement. It's a requirement. It's a requirement. So e- EMR is the requirement. Emergency medical responder is the base base requirement. So what's the big difference between EMT and EMR? What one letter? Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Okay. <laughs> what do you do? What What's the big difference between the two? It, it would be it's, scope of practice and what what I'm able to do versus um, what. Okay. What well, can you do that he can't do? <laughs> Silence. Um, what would be an example? Start an IV, maybe. Yeah, IV could be one. Um, maybe um, an airway, inserting an airway. A tracheotomy? That... No, no, like no? A... like an eye gel. Yeah, I cannot do an eye gel. Yeah, that would be another thing. Okay, so um, it depends on the injury, whether how how much help you can be to that person. Right. So. That's and you carry all that equipment with you mm-hmm. when you you do too. Yeah, I didn't know. And that. then depending upon the incident, we have we have additional resources in our trucks, and so if we have a situation where we might need oxygen for a subject, we'll you know we'll deploy those resources. I don't carry necessarily you know I don't carry an O2 tank obviously <laughs> with me in, Why in not? the field. <laughs> um, so well, we'll have. We'll make the request to our our truck that's in the parking lot, and they'll either put oxygen on the horseback. The on Samsar will bring oxygen in or bring water. We'll have people hike oxygen tanks in, and um, you know we're working on a really tight window usually, trying to just get to that person and get them on as quickly as we can. So we're constantly making a request for resources to be brought in. So if somebody's interested in, in volunteering for SARSI, what do they need to do? Where do they need to go to apply? Well, they can send an email to sarahjoin at sarsi.org. That, that would get the process started with us. And once they, you talked about a hike that's coming up? We have a, the candidate hike is coming up in October, or August 13th, I believe. Yeah. But... Um, yeah, unfortunately, we just finished the process. They are required to attend one of two orientations, and we just held our second orientation, so somebody would not be able to join this year because we just we're just starting that process. But they could get their name in the hat for the following year. But they need to attend one of uh, an orientation. Um, we hold two of them; they're the same thing. Um, but one of those sessions, and then. They need to complete the application, and then if they are selected, they'll be invited to the candidate hike. And, and what this hike that you're talking about, where is it? Is, you, know, you march up Mount Lemon or what? Would This year it's going to be exactly where we were talking about earlier, at prison camp, or also known as Gordon Hirabayashi. That's going to be about mile post seven. So you start at the bottom and you walk your way no, up? No, 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 no. We'll start in the parking lot and we'll send different groups of people in different directions, and they'll be on a team with other rescuers and other candidates and we like chris was saying we'll get a chance to meet the people talk with them and 
see it's, what they're doing. It's basically our interview process. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really is. Okay. Um, and we see how they perform on the trail. It's typically about a three three mile hike or something like that, and then so we'll hike to a location and just get to know them and see how their stamina is. We ask them to carry not only their own pack but an additional like ropes or help uh, um, you know w- carry our litter in the field for a stretch and just see how they do. And and they have to show that they can operate as a team. I mean, we've had people that have come and wanted to be very defiant before the hike has even started. There's no reason for you to be there because we need team players because our success comes as a team, not by individual effort. So, so true. But they'll, the candidate hike, they'll do basically a couple of mock rescues. What kind of mock rescues do you... Well, we'll have a subject that's out in the field. They'll take the equipment, the um, Stokes basket and wheel, out to where that subject is, taking necessary equipment with them, package that person up and carry them back to the starting point. So it's a it's a real live experience of what would be on a on a rescue. And that's not easy carrying somebody out a couple miles. That's, you know, do you alternate people or is it the same oh, yes. poor poor guys who have to carry somebody out? Oh, no, we encourage, <laughs> like, oh. we encourage people to rotate out because the, uh, the goal isn't to burn anybody out. We want to keep that team as fresh as we can because if we're burning them out, they're put at risk of injury. We don't put our teams in there to hurt them. And just to clarify, the litter that we use is actually on a, on a wheel. And so we're... we're we we attach the basket, the litter to the wheel, and then and then wheel them out. But it's uh, the work could be comes, a bumpy ride. Yes, <laughs> yes yeah. and during and, this, and, and during, keeping it balanced during this exercise. Also, we'll have Sheriff One our helicopter fly. That might be the first exposure that any of our um, candidates have to a helicopter. So see the where the helicopter flies in proximity to what you're doing, and you know the radio traffic and all that sort of thing. It's 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 a really good experience for the candidate did you practice being lowered down from a helicopter i i'm not part of the helicopter team no did Me? you nope, I'm no i'm primarily a ground pounder myself did you? we have to do it quarterly yes i want a picture of that <laughs> <laughs> we we all are trained in in how to operate around a helicopter and we practice getting into and out of a helicopter uh, but we don't actually there's we have a select team of individuals who are certified in repelling out of a helicopter or or being hoisted now insurance are you guys insured is sarsi cover you with insurance for injury or are you required to have your own insurance and is that part of the requirement no they're covered by um by this the state Okay, basically workman's comp when they're on a mission. Mm -hmm. And that's why we keep our records and everything and and make sure that we're on top of everything. So every time we we finish a call and we bring everybody out of the field, we debrief on site and we ask, is anybody injured? Did anything get damaged? And we check at that point. If there's any injury at all, we get them to the doctor, get them checked out, and we stay on top of them and make sure that um, they get the, the care that's required. Are you guys from Tucson? 
Uh, I've been here about 10 years, but no, not initially, no. Where are you from? I grew up in Southern California. Okay. Yeah. I, I came also came here from Southern California in 1978, so I've been out here for a long time. You've been here for a long time, yeah. So do you like it? You're here. You, you must like it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Not near the tra- not near as much traffic. <laughs> Were you involved with search and rescue in Southern California? No, no. no. So this is a, a whole new experience, right? So okay. What um, other than that? Your background. You've been doing what you do IT stuff for how many years? About twenty years. In how many years? Oh, boy, thirty maybe. So. When you're cross-training with different, because I know you guys cross-train, are there other aspects of what Search and Rescue offers that you want to get involved with besides drones? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm actually quite involved in quite a bit more than the drones. Like um, what? I, I'm on the board of directors, and I'm actually with recruiting and membership and things like that. Uh, but more than anything else, I'm, as Chuk was calling, a ground pounder. I'm out there. <laughs> ground pounder. No, I, I'm out there carrying and helping out with the with on foot more than anything else so but but there's a lot of different cool things i love the imt stuff that chris does and and there's a lot of really neat things that once you once you become involved with the organization all these little things need to be handled somebody needs to do the truck and the facilities and this that and the other there's so much stuff to be done and uh what's neat about this what i've always found really neat about search and rescue is that you know when you go to a job everybody's brought their you know, you work with other people that need the paycheck. When you go to search and rescue, we're all brought together by a passion, and we all have different backgrounds. Chris and I just happen to work in IT, but we've got lawyers and engineers and, and, and everybody who is all brought together, not by money, but by their passion for going out for there helping in the field. People. And it's, it's really neat because you meet a lot of great people, and uh, you get to, I guess, mentally cross-train because you're talking to people who are disciplined in something else for 30 or 40 or 50 years, and you get to hear this person on the trail. It's it's a lot of fun. Do you, do you find that people from different backgrounds have a different perspective of, of approaching the job? Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the best things we get out of it. We've, we've got people that look at things completely differently. So... What kind of, um, Steve, what kind of characteristics do you look for when you're you're asking people to volunteer and be a part of this? Well, again, it's really you have to be a team player and you have to have that willingness to do whatever you're asked to do, whether you're, you're um, just lugging some gear into the field or you're sitting on a radio and uh, answering questions answering the radio and, and spread, uh, sharing that information. But um, are there particular job backgrounds that you're looking for? No, not at all. Okay. It, it's, it's the personality of the, of the people have to be willing to work together. And if they're not, then it definitely shows itself rather quickly. So what we suggest that people do is if they, they can't make an orientation we ask that they look at the um, the schedule for regular meetings. If it's something that they're interested in, come to the regular meetings and see what it's all about. You'll have reports on, on missions that were accomplished during that time and uh, ask questions and see, see what you can bring. How often do you guys meet? Monthly. I mean, Every officially month? monthly, but we 
I'm in, it seems like two or three meetings a week. <laughs> okay. Our monthly meetings are, are the first Friday of every month. And anybody's invited. Mm-hmm. And they're held at our facility, um, which is out at, out by Sabino Canyon. Okay. You have an address? 5900 North Sabino Canyon. So if you're interested in, in volunteering or finding out more about what they do, that's where you go. Attend a few meetings, mm-hmm. hear what they're talking about. And tell me, give me the story of uh, the last rescue you were on. Well, it was actually just, a, well, what day was it? It was Sunday. Okay. It was about 108 degrees. Charming. <laughs> and uh, there was an individual who um, was too hot and needed help getting out. So we shot up there. I don't know how much detail I'm supposed to give on this, but we shot up there and uh, made sure that he was okay. He was actually picked up by helicopter. And... Um, we got out, and it was the very, very sweaty, very, very hot. Do you think anybody did that just to get a free helicopter ride? <laughs> you know, in the past, we've had people call and say, hey, I'm in distress, send a helicopter. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. I mean, Tell we, them, call Uber. <laughs> yeah, we have to really look at the risk-reward here because we put that thing in the air with all those spinning parts. It's it's definitely dangerous. And it's a tool that we'll use when necessary, but not just because the request has been made. So if you want to get involved, go to go to the meeting. Check out, check Sar- out yeah. sarsi.org, which will check have information. It'll have information on all of our uh, groups. And the drone group isn't listed on there right now as a specific group, is it? No, correct, it's not. Yeah, so um, they'll have to do a little bit of digging for that. But if they come to an in-person meeting, they're more than welcome to have their questions answered at that time. So if you're already a drone pilot, that would be ideal if you're interested in search and rescue. Didn't you say that they have the image gets reflected on the side of your truck? We can put a big screen on, si- on the side of the vehicle. And have some observers that can analyze that image that the drone pilot might miss what's there because of the operation of flying the drone itself. Then he's looking at a tiny screen compared yes. to what you'd be looking at. Correct. So it's not just the drone team isn't just a pilot. It's an actual team. There's many, many things that need to be looked after there. So you said team, do they go out several of them at a time? Yes, it's necessary. Okay. Even our ground teams, when we deploy our ground teams, we don't just send an individual out. We send teams out. So they can take care of each other, too. Correct. So that would make sense. Yeah, again, we're not putting our people out there to put them in danger, so we want to look after them. How many dogs do you have? I'm not sure that number's changing. I want to say that I believe we're at about six right now, but I... I'll have to get back to you. And they're all trained in the same discipline? Uh, multiple disciplines. Some are human remains, so they can go, if we're looking for a deceased, some are um, tracking, trailing, air scent. And then we use we also use Border Patrol dogs or Department of Correction dogs. We have other resources there as well. So drug dogs, bomb dogs, all kinds of dogs. Whatever kind of dog we need. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever's happening out there. So what are you going to do when you leave the show today? I'm going to follow up on the call that I'm involved with right now, checking the guys that are on the mountain, um, see if everything else is on track and try to keep the people of Pima County safe. 
I, I, yeah, we've got three minutes. Our clock is broke, so I have to keep watching John because you're wondering what I'm doing, and he's giving me signals on you know what's going on. Um, so when you leave here, you're going to be going on a call. Are you going to go on a call too, or are you? We just we we wait to be called, called? out by by the deputies. We serve at at the behest of the of the sheriff's department. So when Have they you... need us as a resource, they'll we'll we'll get a notification via an app that we have on our phone and so if we get a call out then if you're if you're available you can respond and so it's not mandatory if you you're busy doing something you don't have to go and they call the next guy correct right how many people are involved right now with search and rescue field qualified about 50 or 60 that's pretty good that's a lot of people A lot of people have jobs, too. So it's not 50 or 60 that are available midday Tuesday, but yeah. Exactly. Exactly. They need a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a special skill, maybe you can apply for search and rescue and be put on their list for next time. Right. Because they just finished their... But you know what? It'd be smart if you look at what the qualifications are, other than being a team player, find out what you can bring to the table and, and get good at that before you apply. Exactly. So if you like hiking, hey... (laughs) <laughs> that's something because that's part of it, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we, we we do have require a, a certain baseline of of fitness in order to in order to be to a be part a, of it. Yes, because mm-hmm. otherwise you're going to be rescuing your own people. Exactly. <laughs> that wouldn't make sense. So I want to thank you guys. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for volunteering because we need people like you. Obviously, I can't do it. And thank you, Steve. For everything that you do well these guys are a great example of how technology is changing search and rescue as well with their involvement so so give us again the website is sarsi.org address I don't know the address. 5900 North Sabino Canyon. <laughs> he just knows how to get there. <laughs> it's up in the overflow parking lot of Sabino Canyon. That's it's, what it is. Okay. <laughs> the overflow parking lot. I want to thank everybody for listening today. And, and next week we'll talk about gun laws and gun safety. And Grim will be here from Diamondback Shooting Sports. Until next week, shop local and stay safe. Law Matters Live Show brings you law enforcement every Saturday morning at 8. On our next show, we will speak with Grim from Diamondback Shooting Sports about Arizona gun laws and your liabilities of owning a weapon. Hi, this is Sherry, asking you to help us keep the lines of communication open with your tax-deductible donation. Simply go to our website, lawmatters1030.org, to show your support. Law Matters podcasts can be found on iTunes, Google Play, and lawmatters1030.org.